Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. For this episode of Stranova, we're going to explore what is one of the most rapidly growing trends in business today, the socially responsible business. Being socially responsible, both as well-behaved corporate entities which are open and honest with their employees, shareholders, vendors, and customers, as well as as organizations to which we would gladly entrust our world's future well-being, isn't a new concept, of course. Corporations have actually been concerned with the world's well-being for many years, thank goodness, sometimes because they thought it was the right thing to do, and sometimes because government agencies legislated the appropriate behaviors for them. It's also been popular for quite some time for corporations to advertise with cause-related messages, such as about how a given company is using more recycled materials in their packaging or how they reduce the amount of toxic emissions they emit into the air. What is new, however, is both the sheer quantity of companies being formed and transforming into whole system socially responsible businesses, ones that both set and follow an elaborate set of social responsibility standards in every element of how they operate. This includes everything from environmentally friendly packaging, decreased energy consumption in the production process and in the use of the products being delivered, as well as in setting and meeting high workplace quality of life standards and improving diversity in the workforce as well. It feels good to think about these kind of businesses, doesn't it? They are, one product at a time, through responsible choices in sourcing, refining, assembling, packaging, and distribution, slowly helping make this world a better place. But, and there's the rub as the old saying goes, is anybody really making money at this kind of business? You know, real money and real growth. And even if a few are, isn't there an inherent flaw in the competitive world when one business in a given segment decides to offer up a more responsible product line? Because, among other things, you've just added cost, and aren't you going to be at a fundamental disadvantage compared to your competitors? Well, for our guest this week, Jeffrey Hollander, the founder and CEO of 7th Generation Inc., the world's most trusted provider of non-toxic and environmentally safe household products, the answer is a flat-out no. He and his team have demonstrated for over 15 years that it is possible to be this kind of business and be successful as well. As just a few examples of what they've accomplished, in 7th Generation's 2004 Corporate Responsibility Report, they note dramatic improvements in the use of recycled materials in their product packaging. They've replaced the petrochemical surfacents that help clean your dishes in home with vegetable-based ones, and they've even applied precious R&D dollars to develop extreme cold water clothing detergents, which work best in class, that simultaneously are more caring of your clothes while they minimize the need for the high energy use that comes with washing with hot water. And guess what? Their sales grew by 40% from 2003 to 2004, 
and their margins increased by nine percentage points in the past five years. We are very pleased to have Mr. Jeffrey Hollander as our guest this week on Stranova. We spoke with him at his home office in Burlington, Vermont. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us this week on Stranova. My pleasure to be here. As I mentioned in my introduction, in recent years there's been a lot of press about the rapid growth of socially responsible businesses. And although that may be helping the global good, there are definitely many who feel it is at best very difficult to run a successful socially responsible business. With seventh generation, you've clearly been able to pull this off, but do you think there's a more general successful business model for running a socially responsible enterprise? And if so, what are some of the secrets for making this possible? There definitely is a strong business case for corporate responsibility, and it is one that is not necessarily well understood, but it is tied to a number of critical aspects that make any business successful. If we look at, for example, uh, employee retention and morale, you can find um, much higher retention rates, much higher productivity rates in companies that are more responsible. And Harvard did a study, and they looked at companies that were more responsible than others and they found that that had a huge impact on the profitability of the company as well. And if you think about it, it sort of makes common sense that it is very expensive to hire and train employees. So companies that are able to hold on to their best employees are probably going to be far more effective than ones that are not. Another area that is easy to understand when you think about corporate responsibility is the management of risk. In a very crude sense, one of the things that responsible businesses do best is that they manage their risk better. They do that because they are proactive in looking at all the challenges that they face as companies. And they develop the transparency so that people inside and outside the company can see those challenges and they develop a programmatic way of dealing with those challenges and risks. One of the worst things that can happen to a business is that it is facing problems and uncertainty and those issues are covered up. Responsible businesses try to be proactive about creating visibility and transparency and when I think about that in a very sort of personal way, I would always rather be the one to describe a challenge that seventh generation is facing. I don't want to have a reporter. I don't want to have an NGO. I don't want to have some outsider catch us doing something wrong and frame that issue in a way that they want to frame it. We are always better off being the ones that come forth with those challenges. Now, that's something that's very hard for businesses to do. Businesses have learned over the years to hide and cover up certain things. And culturally, that's one of the things that's the hardest to change. If you look at other areas of corporate responsibility, whether they're environmental, um, whether they're social, I believe that the forward-looking, long-term nature of corporate responsibility also has a lot of strategic advantages. While we hear a lot about companies making decisions for the short term, 
those are often not things that are in the best interest of the company. And responsible businesses try to look at long-term issues. They try to do planning not for tomorrow and the next quarter, but for the next three, five, ten years. Now, will that necessarily optimize your profit in the next quarter? No. But optimizing your profit in the short term will only lead to problems in the long term. So those are some of the business case issues. And these business case issues are documented by a wealth of research, whether it's Morgan Stanley or whether it's Merrill Lynch. Many of the large companies have done research about the performance of responsible companies. And in virtually every case, found that responsible businesses perform better than less responsible ones. Part of what I think I hear you saying is that although there may be some cost elements that are added in for a, quote, responsible business, they really are investments for the long term and that they, they create better loyalty, better quality personnel internally, better overall practices, and also a stronger connection to your customer base. Absolutely. You know, it sounds common sense to invest for the long term. We live in a world that is very, very short-term focused, and that short-term focus leads to lots of bad decisions. Many companies blame it on Wall Street and the public markets. Many companies say, well, we have to do that because people are watching our quarterly earnings. I think that that's just wrong to design a board to create expectations that it's what happens in the short term that matters is really destructive to a business. And being on the board of a, a public company, I know that it's possible to say, hey, we're not going to do that. If we have a bad quarter, we have a bad quarter. We're going to do what's right for our investors in the long term and basically shun investors that want to invest in the company um, for a quarter, uh, let alone a couple of hours. We have people today that, that are day traders. They come in and out of stocks in a matter of minutes or hours. There is no way that a company can satisfy and build an intelligent, meaningful relationship with investors that don't want to invest in a company in the long term. Trying to appease that type of investor will not benefit the rest of your shareholders. Actually, it's interesting. It sounds a lot like some of the themes. There's a current book you may be familiar with, John Bogle has on rediscovering the soul of capitalism, where he's basically talking about the transition that we have come down from people thinking of themselves as owners of companies to being simply temporary investors to the point that you actually don't own stock. You can mentally think of it as you really rent stock you know, for a fee, and then you trade it out. Well, he is a visionary, quite frankly, and he has a whole bunch of very concrete ideas that are beneficial for business. One of the most interesting ideas I've heard was proposed by a Financial Times columnist named Simon London, who basically said that you should have to own a stock for a year before you have any right to vote that stock or influence the future direction that the company goes in. That's sort of a radical notion, but I think it would eliminate short-term investors putting influence on management only to appease their very short-term investment. Well, let me shift to one of the elements of a successful business of this type, and that has to do with how you ensure alignment to the values in your business. I'm sure that you get into discussions on maybe an occasional basis at least where there's a decision that you've made maybe to recall something or to reformulate something at significant expense and then yet seems like 
perhaps a small issue, and yet to you it's fundamental to the values you've set out for yourself uh, as a company. I mean, how do you go about this alignment with the values in this kind of situation? There are perhaps, roughly speaking, two types of ways to create alignment. One is that the head of the company or senior management says or decrees that this is the way things will be done. This is the decision that will be made. I think that's a pretty bad way to create alignment and one that is not terribly effective. What we aspire to do is to create a broad understanding of our values, but our business strategy as well throughout the whole company so that everyone working at the company is clear on what the right thing to do, both from a values perspective and from a strategic perspective, so that my job is not running around telling people what to do or being a policeman when they don't do what I think they should do, but that that clarity, that decision-making capability resides throughout the whole company. You have a much stronger and a much more effective company when you create that type of alignment, although many companies don't know how to do that, nor are they willing to necessarily invest the time that it takes to do that. One of the challenges is that that process involves hearing a lot of people's thoughts and opinions about things that sometimes managers aren't particularly interested in. You can view that as a waste of time, or you can view that as an incredible opportunity to create a much stronger plan and a much deeper sense of alignment. Our goal is to create a company where it's really self-governing, where that governance comes from everybody that's working at the company, not from the management of the company. Now, that's something that we aspire to. That's something that we have yet to achieve, but we are committed to investing the time to make that happen, but also the training, because there is a command and control mentality that's uh, found in most businesses, and often it's retraining management that is the biggest problem. Uh, managers are used to telling people what to do. Managers are used to making decisions. And in some cases, we have to define a new role for what it means to be a manager. And that role is far more about empowering the people that they're managing than it is telling them what to do and giving them instructions. All of these things, whether we talk about values, whether we talk about alignment, whether we talk about new ways of management, all are coming out of a very new perspective of how businesses operate. And I think if we are going to be successful, if we're going to be competitive, or if we're going to be effective at whatever it is we want to do, we have to recognize that, that the world is changing dramatically. And as has been the case in the past, business is in yet another process of, in a sense, reinventing itself. And that reinvention is really about creating a very different experience of what it's like to work at a company, a very different culture. And much of what we end up doing at Seventh Generation is untraining people from all of the bad habits that they've learned at the other companies they've worked at so that they can participate effectively in this new culture, in this new business. That has also a very different purpose. You know, our purpose, yes, it is to make money. Yes, our purpose is to, to be responsible to our stakeholders and our shareholders. But that's not really why people are working at seventh generation. People are here at seventh generation because they want to 
experience something that is fulfilling for them as human beings and that they collectively want to be part of having a positive impact on the world. In our case, it has to do with the environment and human health. But it is that purpose that is far more empowering and far more evoking of passion than a company that is dedicated to just making money. And this is not a new idea. I mean, when you look at companies like Johnson & Johnson, when you look at companies like Hewlett-Packard, many companies that have been successful over the decades in the past have been successful because they have passion and commitment and purpose for something that is not primarily about making money. Well, and that extends to your customers as well, and that your customers often will buy from you with, at least I would guess so, you would know them obviously much better than I would, but as a customer myself even, I'm less concerned about the exact price. Obviously, it has to be within some some range, but it needs to work good, and then also the fact that there's something else I'm doing good for the world by purchasing it is part of that. So it's not just your employees, but your customer base as well. Absolutely. It is as important to rethink of the relationship we have with our customers as it is with our employees. We are not primarily about selling stuff, although that's in, in one sense what we do. We are trying to enroll people in our passion and our commitment to have a positive impact on the world. One of the reasons why price is somewhat less important, I don't want to say it's not important, is because we hope to give people a chance to participate with us in the vision we have for a different and better world. And the opportunity to be part of that process, to be part of that community, we think is something that many people find very exciting. Unfortunately, we live in a world where there is a tremendous lack of community. People move around to new locations. They move around to new jobs. We are, in, in, in many ways, a, a very sort of displaced society. And I think many people are, are yearning and looking to be part of something that has a purpose that they can feel a part of, that they can feel good about. And if we can wrap that into the daily task of buying bathroom tissue or laundry detergent, so when you're doing many of the, the rote things that you have to do every day, you can also feel like you're supporting and you're part of this higher and, and, and greater purpose. You know, we think that's very powerful, and it's powerful from a competitive perspective, but it's also powerful because we believe that we can create much deeper and more lasting relationships with people when we connect with them on that level. It is a little bit audacious to aspire to that, but I think that that's very much why we're here. And those different relationships really extend to everybody that we touch because we want to have different relationships with our vendors. We want to have different relationships with our investors. We want to create the alignment that we talked about earlier with everybody that we interact with. And that is a process. I doubt that I'm ever going to wake up one morning and say, ah, everybody is aligned today and it feels good. Uh, I, I don't expect that to happen. The process of alignment is one of constantly becoming, constantly working on that alignment. Because our goals probably will change a little bit, people change. And it's one of the things that's very hard about doing this because it is endlessly being in a process 
where you sort of never arrive at your goal, yet you sort of have to enjoy, as many people have said, the journey. When I was in my early 20s, someone wrote a book about people that are effective, and they described them as people who constantly move the goalposts further away in the midst of the race. Now, that is a little bit depressing because the race never ends, and at some point you have to realize that it is all about the process and not about crossing the finish line. Let me shift to another question here, and you've talked quite a bit about seventh generation. If a business were wanting to transform itself into becoming more, and I, I wish there was a better phrase for this, but becoming more socially responsible after having been perhaps less so, say, for example, a company that was producing other packaged goods for supermarkets and all that and has decided it wants to change, is that possible to make that kind of transformation? I mean, you've done things building it from the ground up this way. Any business can make that change. There is no company, well, I, I, I guess I would hesitate when I think about companies that are building landmines or selling products that, that are unhealthy for people. But if we take McDonald's, I mean, McDonald's has for a long time sold products that are not particularly good for people's health. Can they transform themselves? Sure. First of all, they have to get clear on what it is they want to become, what is their purpose, where are they going. They then have to do something that is a little bit challenging, which is they have to do sort of an audit of their impact on the world. What is the footprint that they're leaving in the sand? Where are all of the ways that they're touching the world in positive and negative places? The reason they have to do that is because there are an endless number of opportunities for businesses to fix things to be more responsible. And you need to do that in, in, in a thoughtful, rational way. What I see a lot of companies doing is they decide that they want to be more responsible, so they almost arbitrarily pick one or two things that they're going to work on. That may come in the form of a cause-related marketing program. We're going to support breast cancer. We're going to support the reduction of pollution. The problem is is that you can't decide that with your right hand you're going to be a good person and continue to be a bad person with your left hand. Uh, sooner or later, someone's going to catch on to the, the lack of authenticity of that. So you do this audit, which we do every year, and you capture a picture of what your impact is, and you do that internally by talking to your staff, you do it with your stakeholders, uh, you do it with outside critics. And once you paint this picture, you say, based upon the impact we have, we think these are the five most important areas to focus on. And you do that in a very transparent way. And you do that by recognizing that there's probably a hundred other things that you're not going to work on. But you tell people you're not going to work on those things. You know, an example for seventh generation would be we discovered that the greatest negative environmental impact that we have as a company is making laundry products that need to be used in hot or warm water. By doing this audit, we realized that it wasn't transportation, it wasn't ingredients, it wasn't any of the things that we thought would be the negative impact, it turned out that it was the design of the products that caused our customers to use a huge amount of energy, thus creating CO2 and, and having a negative effect on global warming. So 
we did this analysis and it was clear to us that we needed to redesign our laundry products to work in cold water. Now, we have other problems with our laundry products. The packaging isn't as good as it needs to be. Some of the raw materials aren't as good as they need to be. But the reality is, is that we said, here's the analysis we did. We believe this is the greatest problem. We're going to focus on that. We committed to fixing it within 12 months. And there's other things that we're not going to be doing. So that creates a rational, transparent process where people can see the good, the bad, and the ugly. They can understand what you're doing and what you're not doing. And if they so choose, enter into a dialogue with you saying, I'm not sure I agree with the priorities you set. Can I discuss them with you? That process is a key to becoming a responsible company. And it is a process that too few businesses actually engage in. I read report after report from companies that publish these corporate social responsibility reports, and they basically say, here's what we're doing. Unfortunately, they fail to disclose what they're not doing and why they are doing what they're doing and why they're not doing what they're not doing. And you really can't make progress if you are arbitrary about the things you choose to focus on. And of course, many companies choose to focus on the things that they think will be most advantageous for them financially and stay away from the things that might in the short term cost them money to fix. So hopefully that gives you a picture. But the reality is whether you're making carpeting, whether you're making cleaning products, whether you're making airplanes, or whether you're an accounting firm, no matter what it is you're doing, you can evaluate your impact and begin a process of becoming more responsible that I think will also have a very strongly positive effect on your long-term financial outlook. Let's then take that a step further. One of the things that I've been curious about is certainly in your role as the head of a socially responsible venture, you'd likely consider it to be a real good thing if many of your regular competitors that are out there, such as Procter & Gamble, might begin making products that are more environmentally friendly and using better packaging techniques and so on. Is that something you know, you'd like to see? And, and and how do you manage the conflicts between that wish and your responsibilities to your shareholders to deliver on your own revenue and profit growth? You know, I have often said that the more habits and ideas of ours that Procter & Gamble copies, the better. And one would think that from a financial perspective, you know, why would we want our competitors to copy us? But the fact is that as a small company, which we are, the world will become better much quicker if our competitors follow in our footsteps and do many of the things that we have found will be better for the world. So whether that is Procter & Gamble using vegetable ingredients to make their cleaning products instead of petroleum, using recycled packaging, using less toxic ingredients, the impact that a very large company, a global company like Procter & Gamble will have on the world by doing that is very, very positive and very, very significant. Now, our role is to keep setting the bar higher and higher and higher. So if Procter & Gamble, as they recently announced, was going to start using some vegetable ingredients for their cleaning products, 
which they did primarily because oil prices were going up, but the reason doesn't really matter. You know, our goal was to say, well, that's great. Vegetable ingredients are good, but they need to be organic. And when they become organic, they need to become fair trade. And we need to keep setting that bar higher and higher and higher. As long as we remain a leader, as long as we keep defining or redefining what is possible, I think that we will do well and continue to earn the support of our customers. And also remember that our customers have a very different relationship with us than they might have with Tide or Bounty. Procter & Gamble isn't going to have the relationship that we have with our customers just because they change their ingredients or their packaging. So our relationship, we believe, is safe, not just because we provide a leadership role in redefining what is possible to do and do it better, but also because we have a very unique relationship with our customers. So I can't and I don't worry about other companies copying us. They will, and we continue to hope that they, they do. And that is, is part of our mission as a company because we want to change the world. We want to help address the, the pressing environmental and health problems that we face. And we're going to do that perhaps most effectively by convincing other businesses to change their practices, not just by our own leadership. One last question here, and you yourself are widely seen as a leader, not just obviously within your organization, but also worldwide in terms of what you're doing here. What has helped create Jeffrey Hollander as the one to make this happen? What kind of background do you have that brought you into this? I had a dad that was a pretty terrific businessman, and, and he was a great teacher of mine. Somehow I also grew up always aware of how little I knew. That is a great gift. As long as I remember how much I don't know, I am able to find bright, talented people who are a lot smarter than I am to surround myself with. I'm also able to always remember that I am in a, an endless process of learning. Yes, I often get a lot of accolades from other people, but I think it's more about attracting other intelligent and other resources and other people around you than it is about who the person is that's doing the attracting. And that's, to me, where the strength comes from. There's very, very little that I could do alone. I'm able to do what I do and accomplish what I accomplish because of the people around me, and that's as much my family and my children as it is the people who I work with every day. Well, that is probably a great place for us to end our interview this week. Jeffrey, I want to thank you very much for joining us this week on Stranova. My pleasure. You know, when I first started working on the introduction to the interview you just heard, I was reminded of the fundamental essence of what business is about, and how somehow we seem to have gone astray a bit. As defined in the Oxford American Dictionary, business is the practice of earning a living by engaging in commerce. Interesting in its power and simplicity, isn't it? It doesn't mention money or profits at all, and commerce is, well, trade of any kind. And while the choice of any business strategy, however noble in purpose, has to hold with it the opportunity to run such a business with reasonable margins, reasonable growth, and as an effective competitor, it is doubly gratifying to hear someone as successful as Jeffrey Hollander and his team at 7th Generation demonstrating such a strong model, both in specific actions and in values held, to prove to us 
that earning a living not only doesn't have to be at the expense of others, but in fact can benefit all of us on a much grander balance sheet than any of our finance departments would ever have plotted out on their own. So for those of you considering launching a socially responsible business, or perhaps transforming the company you're already part of, I'd recommend looking deeply into the roadmap 7th generation and its successful cousins have already provided for us. It just might be the biggest holiday gift you could give to any of us this season. That's my reflection for this week, and thanks for listening. For further information on the topics discussed in this episode of Stranova, please visit us at our website, www.stranova.com, and remember to check out the current program and resources pages. Also, if you have any comments on this week's show or suggestions for future shows, contact us by email at ideas at In addition, you can also call our Stranova comment line at 408-849-4394. We plan to sample some of these messages for a future podcast segment of Stranova in the future. This recording is copyright 2005 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson thanking all of you for joining us this week on Stranova.